Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This week, I'm coming to you from Israel. That's right, Rick. I'm here in the land of Israel where I've experienced the day of resistance, getting stuck in the traffic with the highways closed all over the country as they were demonstrating for judicial reform. Well, we've got an exciting program today with our regulars, Ken Timmerman and David Dolan, Israel Madad, and our new broadcast partner, Chris Katolka, here on the program. Well, let's get started. we got so much to cover this week on the program, Rick. Ken Timmerman joins us. He is our expert on geopolitical affairs. He is a frequent contributor to this program. He's an author. He's an analyst. You can find out more about him by going to KenTimmerman.com. You can sign up for his mailing list, read about his books and different things. Ken, thank you for joining us. Uh, Rick, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Well, Ken, we'll start this week in a place that we haven't been recently. It'd be in the Middle East, and we're going to be talking about Saudi Arabia. A couple very interesting stories, including kind of a blockbuster story that came out on Friday, talking about Iran and Saudi Arabia coming to an agreement. How did this happen? Well, uh, the Chinese, Rick, of all people, got in the middle of this, and they basically strong-armed both the Saudis and the Iranians to set aside a long-standing conflict that they've had since really 2016 when they broke diplomatic relations, when uh, the Saudi embassy was stormed in Tehran by so-called protesters, probably people who were put up to it by the Iranian regime. And it's interesting that the Chinese got involved uh, because they are clients of both Saudi Arabia and Iran. They're buying oil from both countries and they're selling weapons to both countries. So here is an interest where the Chinese are actually de-escalating a conflict in order to preserve their own interests, oil. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, what does this say going forward? I know as we look at Israel and their uh, relationship, former Prime Minister Lapid said that this could destroy Israel's defensive wall against Iran. Is this coalition a danger to Israel? You know, you got to love Israeli politicians, especially when they're in the opposition. They say all kinds of nonsense. Israel certainly had no way of preserving the Saudi-Iranian feud, and they had no way, uh, no influence over China to try to resolve that feud. So to blame Bibi Netanyahu for uh, the Saudis and the, and the Iranians resuming diplomatic ties is pathetic. It's ridiculous. And it shows the hyper-politicization that you have in Israel, by the way, with the, which we have in this country too. But the good news here on this is that the fact that they are normalizing ties, Iran and Saudi Arabia, will have zero impact on Iran's nuclear weapons program. It will have zero impact on Saudi Arabia's opposition to it. It'll just mean that the Saudis will have diplomats in, in Tehran and the Iranians will have diplomats in Riyadh. Excellent point there, Ken, about politics and uh, the way to take a shot at your political opponent. Very opportunistic there by Lapid. Well, Israel is involved with Saudi Arabia now, too, on the same day that that story came out. Saudi Arabia presented a plan, or I think it, they presented a plan where they looked at normalizing ties with Israel, but it involves the U.S. basically rubber stamping a nuclear program for Saudi Arabia? Well, the Saudis have been hinting for a number of years that they want to 
have a civilian nuclear program. And, and the reason for this is pretty clear, and it has nothing to do with Israel. It has to do with Iran. Uh, remember, a civilian nuclear program is the legend that Iran has been using to develop military nuclear weapons. Okay, so you, uh, if you have a, for example, a power plant, the spent fuel from the power plant can be reprocessed to make plutonium, to make a bomb. Or in the case of the Iranians, with the same power plant, you produce your own low enriched uranium, which means you have a uranium enrichment program. And as the, as the Iranians have been showing us quite, quite clearly over the past 15 years, if you can enrich uranium to 3%, you can also enrich it with the very same equipment to 93% to weapons grade. So the Saudis basically want a hedge and they're trying to couple this to diplomatic relations with Israel simply to show that they can actually get something in exchange. And this is, look, this is good negotiation strategy on their part. I, I think the Saudis are absolutely right to demand something in exchange for diplomatic relations with Israel. Well, this is all very interesting, but I am concerned of a Middle Eastern arms race, a Middle Eastern nuclear arms race that seems to me to be concerning not only for the world in general, but for Israel in particular. So if you could just give us your commentary, your opinion on this, Saudi Arabia ties with Iran, ties with the U.S., ties with China, as we're seeing with this deal. Where do they fit into this plan? How should we be viewing Saudi Arabia going forward? Well, look, the, the Saudis have understood, especially with the Biden administration, that they cannot rely on the United States for their defense. Uh, the United States is no longer a reliable ally. That is a pretty damaging thing. Uh, it, it was certainly not that way under President Trump or under President Bush before him. Uh, but Biden has been very standoffish with the South Saudis, very hostile towards the Saudis. He has pushed the Saudis towards China. So the Saudis are now buying weapons from China. This is not a good thing for the United States. And I am not sure, by the way, that the U.S. would give the Saudis a civilian nuclear program. Uh, they might turn to Russia for those nu uh, nuclear reactors, or they might turn to France, some other country, but not the United States. So, look, I think a lot of this is th these are problems of our own making by our government right here in the United States. Uh, the Saudis, of course, want to hedge against Iran's nuclear weapons programs because they do not trust us any longer to defend them. Excellent analysis, Ken. Well, we'll move on from the Middle East there. And we talked about China a little bit beforehand, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about China right now and probably the least surprising news development of the week. China's Xi Jinping was reelected. Uh, can you tell us what that means and quite a few things coming out of this conference that they're in there? Right. So President Xi holds three titles. The least important title is President of Communist China. <laughs> but that's the one that he was reelected to a third term, an unprecedented third term, just uh, this past week by the their rubber stamp parliament. The most important title that he holds, of course, is Secretary General of the Ch Chinese Communist Party. Uh, the second most important title is his chairman of the Central Military Commission, in other words, the boss of the armed forces. All of those, he has also been reelected to third terms, uh, getting away with this constitutional amendment that he actually had abolished a number of years ago that imposed term limits. 
So now President Xi becomes the third longest serving leader after Mao and after Deng before him. Mao was there for three decades, Deng for two decades, Xi now going into his 16th year uh, and with no end in sight. Well, one of those roles that you talked about, Ken, was his head of the military. And he is talking now about elevating his military status, increasing their strength. He said America is surrounding probably more in an economic sense than uh, than a military sense. But they are surrounding China and it's a threat to China's existence. So he wants to elevate that status, which is concerning because some people are saying that their military is the strongest in the world right now. Well, that's right. And and this is what I would call Chinese jingoism. The United States is, is encircling them. We're encircling them with military alliances, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, uh, even support for Vietnam, for India as well. So the Chinese are, are using this bugbear of the United States in a jingoistic fashion to gin up this uh, nationalist sentiment. They've been working very hard on this for a number of years. That part of it is not new. But to see Xi uh, talk about enhancing their military capabilities when they've already been doing a lot of that already, he called this week for a rapid uh, modernization of the military to bring it to world-class standards. What it means is that he wants to make sure that the People's Liberation Army which is actually the military wing of the Communist Party, let's not forget that, that they can go head-to-head with the U.S. military. Now, you mentioned uh, Mm. some analysts here in the United States, General Jack Keane, who uh, is the president of the Institute for the Study of War. He has been commenting recently on what would happen should there be a war with China over Taiwan in the future. And the latest uh, war game, Rick, shows that the U.S. would run out of missiles to defend Taiwan in about one week. So Keene says we have got to really dramatically ramp up arms production in our country if we want to stay competitive with communist China. And that's something that I see no inclination for from the Biden administration. Well, certainly a situation that we want to keep an eye on. You watch China Force. You watch all these nations, and we appreciate it. One last question. We haven't hardly talked about Russia on this trip, but we've got about a minute left, and uh, there was seems to be an escalation. And hypersonic missiles, is this an escalation in the Russia-Ukraine crisis? What's going on there? Well, it's not really an escalation. They've used these hypersonic missiles, which are launched from uh, aircraft at a standoff distance. They've used them before in the beginning of the war, but they haven't used them recently, probably because they're very expensive. And there are no targets in Ukraine at this point that really can benefit from spending several million dollars to destroy. But the one thing that they do get, the Ukrainians cannot shoot them down. Uh, They cannot shoot them down. This was a huge missile barrage over the past couple of days. It's the biggest one really in a long time in the war. And and they launched five or six different kinds of missiles. And what I found so extraordinary here was that the Ukrainians still have air defenses left. And they were able to shoot down probably two-thirds of those missiles, but not the hypersonic missiles. It's really incredible. In this war, there has not been an air war in Ukraine. The Russians have been afraid to use their air force because Ukraine does still have air defenses. Well, Ken, thank you so much for keeping us updated. We use your vast experience and intelligence, which was chronicled in your latest book. We could talk about it, your memoir, and the rest is history. You can find out more about that by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you so much for being on the program and talking to our listeners. 
Thanks so much, Rick. God bless. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is the segment of our program where we have what we call our Middle East News Update. We get news updated from all over the Middle East, especially Israel. We have a particular focus there, but all over the Middle East. And to do that, we have with us this week, author, journalist, Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. It's good to be with you, Rick. Well, Dave, we have plenty of news, as always, plenty of news coming out of Israel. But the main thing that is taking place right now, and we talk about it for the last several weeks now, is these protests for the judicial overhaul. The protests are continuing to escalate. Can you tell us where we stand right now? Yes, Rick, it was a very busy week. There were two days of major protests uh, culminating on Thursday, which was interesting because the U.S. Secretary of Defense was visiting in Israel, meeting with leaders as all this uh, rioting was going on and disruptions. Once again, Tel Aviv was the main focus, and once again, the Ayalon Freeway was blocked and the police got involved. And uh, on and on, it took place all over the country. And Beersheba, a former chief of staff, military chief of staff, spoke at a huge rally and came out against these proposed reforms very strongly. There was a naval blockade even up in Haifa. People against the reforms that uh, used their boats and ships to blockade the harbor there for several hours. And other things took place. So it, it's continuing. And Thursday evening... Soon after, the Prime Minister Netanyahu flew to Italy. Now, he barely was able to do that. They had to get a helicopter to take him to the airport because the demonstrators were blocking the entrances to the airport because they knew he was planning this flight to Rome. But he got there and he flew off. And the president, President Herzog, took advantage of his being gone to hold an unscheduled evening speech Uh, to the country in which he, for the first time, really strongly condemned these reforms. He said they go way beyond what is legal, what is right, what is just, and it's tearing apart our society, it's tearing apart our military, and we can't allow this, we don't have the luxury of this, and that sort of thing. So he urged uh, Netanyahu, when he gets back, to pull this legislation from the Knesset, immediately halt it, and uh, then they can sit down with opponents 
to discuss it. And that's what the opposition leaders, Lapid and Gantz, said, that they're willing to sit and talk and work out something, but not until the legislation is pulled. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. But uh, it's getting a little bit out of hand. There's been threats, physical threats, threats against several leaders and other things. So um, Israel, of course, doesn't as the president said, doesn't doesn't have the luxury of fighting amongst itself when it's got the Palestinians fighting against them and uh, Iran, of course, remaining a major threat. Well, and as you know, David, too, we actually, I know at that same time on Thursday when Prime Minister Netanyahu was heading to Italy, we had a small group coming into Israel. Jimmy was there to meet him, and we sat in traffic for quite a while. And, and again, very disruptive. You've kind of laid it out for us what has been taking place there. Very disruptive, but not violent. But there are some dangerous aspects to these protests. One of them is some of the reservists, uh, the elite forces, the pilots are declining to serve their reserve time. Now, this is very dangerous for a country who relies on their reserve army. What Can you tell us about that situation, and how does it threaten Israel's security? Yes, Rick. Last Sunday, 37 out of 40 reserve pilots in a unit announced that they would not show up for their training exercise on Tuesday. They would stay home to protest these reforms, etc., they met uh, later with the chief of staff, Herzi Halevi, to discuss this. Uh, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant spoke with some of them as well. The Air Force Commander, General Tomer Barr, spoke with them and convinced them to show up, but they didn't have a training exercise. They just showed up at the base, sat down with some of these officials and discussed their complaints and whatever. But as you said, the reserves, and especially reserve pilots, make up a major part of uh, Israel's defense structure. So that was a very ominous incident. And the man that was leading it, a reserve colonel, uh, Pellet was his name. He was uh, forced out of the military reserves. That created a lot of heat, a lot of protests, and it goes on and on. But he put out a statement saying that this is rash legislation, is, an, is a quote. But he also said, I don't encourage my fellow pilots to quit the military. We must maintain the cohesion of the Israeli Air Force, he said. And that came after a couple ministers strongly condemned him. One said, I don't know if I can say this on air, but he said this man should, quote, go to hell. That was the communications minister in a tweet. And another minister made a similar statement saying that this is a gift to Israel's enemies, Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Iran, and we must immediately cease this sort of thing. But uh, the prime minister is worried about it. The president mentioned it as well, that we have to hang together at this time, and especially given the threats. And as you know, there was more trouble in Samaria this week. Two incidents of five were killed on Tuesday when Israeli forces went in to arrest the murder of two Israelis two weeks ago, and there was a firefight, then two days later another firefight, and three were killed. Israel bombed an airbase in Syria, in Aleppo at the same time, and all this while uh, the American Defense Secretary was meeting with top Israeli leaders, mainly to discuss the threat that Iran poses to Israel and the region, and expressing strong support for Israel, but also saying that this uh, incohesion has to end. It's too dangerous for Israel, and our partnership is strong, but 
you guys have to take care of this, essentially, is what he said. Well, David, those were two topics that I wanted to talk to you about, uh, the, the Palestinian situation, which at the time of this incoming government and some of the what might be considered polarizing figures in this government, especially when it comes to Judea and Samaria and the Temple Mount, we saw quite a bit of activity on the, the Palestinian side, Iranian-backed terrorism, and that seemed to be escalating, but it almost seems like that problem and that situation is on the back burner right now as we go through this judicial overhaul, doesn't it? Well, it seems like it, but it can't be on the back burner because essentially Islamic Jihad and Hamas have declared full war against Israel, armed war. And they are launching these armed attacks now all the time. They're fighting back whenever Israeli soldiers go into northern Samaria at all now. They shoot at them, and there's firefights. So really, we are in a new uprising. It's a very serious situation. As I've said, Iran is definitely behind that. They're definitely pushing their two proxy forces to stir up as much trouble as they can. And they'll continue to do that despite this other situation. But yes, on Thursday, Rick, 3,000 security personnel were employed in fighting this uh, protest situation and controlling it. Uh, well, you can't afford to have that many men doing that when this other thing is going on as well, this other war is going on as well. So it's a very tense and a very bad situation, a very dangerous time. Well, David, my final question to you as we wrap it up here on this Middle East news update, as we look at this situation, now more than ever, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is a right-leaning prime minister for sure, but his Likud party is now you would probably consider them center-right because they have a new religious extreme uh, that is a large part of this coalition. And obviously, as we know, they have a lot of influence. Can you tell us just as we go here, what is going to happen? We have, we know that there's going to be some division in Israel as we enter into the end times and this polarization will continue. What is going to happen between this uh, secular kind of more liberal element, and then the religious right. How is this going to be reconciled? How are we going to get past this? I really don't know, Rick. It's a conundrum. It's uh, as bad as I've ever seen it. And in the 80s, when I first moved to Israel, we often had labor protests. We often had airport shutdowns. We had the bus system and the train system shut down pretty much all the time. It was going on and a lot of disruption in daily life. But it wasn't something that threatened civil war, that uh, two camps are forming that really are making strong, strong statements against each other. And uh, it's very, very worrisome. On a spiritual level, Rick, I can only say that Satan, Satan in Hebrew, the enemy, the adversary, is trying his best to stir up as much trouble in Israel and the region as possible, probably because a major war with Iran is coming. And again, the chief of staff said that after his meeting with Lloyd Austin, that, you know, we will take every measure we have to take. He said, I want to repeat every measure necessary. So, you know, that's it's a very dangerous time indeed. And boy, what a time where prayer is needed for the people of Israel. It's a very dangerous time. Well, we'll end there, David, as we often end saying, pray for the peace of Jerusalem pray for the Jewish people. We know that God has a plan for the Jewish people from our study of Scripture, and that plan looks like it's actually being put into place right now. It looks like the stage is being set for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. David, thank you so much. We look forward to talking to you again soon. You're very welcome, Rick. God bless. 
We're going to take a break right now here on Prophecy Today, but when we return, we'll have more right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we are examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. I'm in Israel this week, so therefore I've experienced some of the things that Israel Modad will talk about in just a moment with Rick. We also have a new partner this week, Chris Katolka, who's talking about his book, Israel Always. Chris is with the Friends of Israel, and we're going to hear an exclusive interview with him as to why he wrote this book. Well, Rick, let's get started with Israel Madad. That's right, Jimmy. I've got Winky Madad with us. He is our resident man on the ground there in Judea and Samaria that the area, the media calls the West Bank, but we call it by its biblical name, Judea and Samaria. He lives there from Brooklyn, uh, but uh, that's why he can relate to us as he shares what's going on there. Uh, Winky Madad, former mayor of Shiloh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me on once again. Well, Winky, uh, I'd like to get to uh, the political news of the day and get your take on several topics today. But before I do, uh, we recently had Purim, and I know you celebrated Purim. And then I was texting you the other day, getting ready for preparing for this program, and you were sending me videos of a joyous celebration that was a wedding. So amidst all that's going on in Israel, life is still going on there in Judea and Samaria, isn't it? Absolutely. We have been here uh, through thick and thin. We understand the realities of the situation on the ground. We are committed to our lifestyle, whether it's birth, whether it's marriage, whether unfortunately it's funerals, 
uh, what, uh, happiness and joy and sad. Uh, this is our purpose here, uh, to live our life, whatever comes. And I hope to be able to continue that for a very long time. Well, I certainly hope you can as well. Well, let's continue. Let's start to get to the politics of the day. And, of course, we talked a little bit about it in the previous segment with uh, Dave Dolan. But I want to talk about this judicial overhaul, the protests that are taking place. We've talked about it quite a bit already on this program. And uh, to me, it seems like a war of hyperbole, a polarizing war of narratives and language when you start to read some of the takes that are coming out. But a take that I've noticed coming out more this last week. And I have a quote here from former Prime Minister Yair Lapid, and he said, I quote, this is a push through the legislation that will turn us into a messianic, extremist, and undemocratic country. So it looks like this is starting to become a war between the secular liberal Jewish people and the religious or the orthodox Jewish people. Is that a way to characterize this a little bit? Well, it has elements of that, shall I say. If I was a neo-Marxist, I would say that Marxism, of course, uh, looks at life as a class struggle based on economics. There could be, of course, a class struggle based on culture or based on national identity. And uh, that for sure, I think, has part of what's doing here in this very turbulent period, very, uh, as you say, hyperbole language and, and elements of confronting rather than doing anything else. And uh, roads are being blocked and all sorts of demonstrations and stuff like that. And I think it was quite indicative a couple of days ago, Yair Lapid, who you quoted, was asked by a journalist uh, in 2005, he had said that those demonstrators protesting against the disengagement who are trying to enter the major highways and stop traffic should be pulled off and thrown into jail without any problem, without any doubt, mm. without any waiting. And he was, he was asked, well, your side is doing the very same thing, and yet you don't say to the police, take them off. He says, oh, well, that was different. That was a different time, and that was different people. And I thought to myself, well, the major element of democracy is equality. If someone does the exact same thing as anybody else, either he gets rewarded or he gets punished for the very same thing. You cannot say that because I'm demonstrating from the left against the right that we don't have to be treated like them when the right was demonstrating against the left. And so uh, there are elements of irrationality in this, of course. Well, and you can't separate these personalities from the politics here and some of the narratives that have been floated around, and I can get you to comment on these as well. One is that Prime Minister Netanyahu, who uh, has, uh, you would call them legal troubles, related to corruption, could be legitimate, could be political. So some people are saying, well, this is just, he wants to overhaul the judiciary so he doesn't face those legal problems. And then a second option is that former political rivals such as Lapid or maybe Benny Gantz, people who have been at odds with Benjamin Netanyahu and won and lost political wars with him throughout the year, this is kind of a way for them to get rid of him. They are out to get rid of Benjamin Netanyahu. What do you think about those two narratives? Is there legitimacy to either one of those? Well, well look, we just have to look at the facts. This argument, can I call it, over and I can't, of course, go into all the elements. We, we'd lose most of our audience. But just take for the fact that issues of how Israel's judicial system works, 
especially our High Court of Justice and the role of what we call the legal advisors in the various ministries and the government have been on the agenda since the middle of the 1990s. So this is nothing new. It's not as all of a sudden Netanyahu was elected on November 1st and now he's turning the tables. The second question is, well, why didn't he do it earlier? And why only now? Is it because, as you ask me, uh, because of his legal difficulties? Well, he never really had a good majority previously in order to push it through the, uh, the, the parliament, our Knesset. We have a parliamentary system, and therefore everything has to go through votes and through three readings and committee sessions. And it was only now that he has a very firm coalition that he can get it through. So uh, I think that the left, or shall we say the anti-judicial reformists, have much more to answer than Mr. Netanyahu on this issue. Well, change tack a little bit as we look at judicial overhaul. One of the things that you notice, there is a portion of the country, not a majority, but a, a strong minority of the country is of Orthodox Jewish religion. There is no Orthodox Jewish judge on the Supreme Court as it is currently constituted, which doesn't seem like you're getting enough representation there. But when we look at it, there are rabbinical courts. And in, in the past, Second Temple period, different times like that, you had a, a Sanhedrin, and you had the Great Sanhedrin, which would have been like the Supreme Court of that time. I'm just wondering, a solution as we look at these things, are they, if you look at the Sanhedrin, uh, I know there have been steps to uh, reform the Sanhedrin. Has that come up in this discussion at all, and is there any movement on that front? I don't really think so. I mean, we, as you said, we do have religious courts, but they're very limited in what they can do, or should I say, in what areas they can uh, adjudicate issues. And Israel still is not a, uh, shall we, a theocracy or even a very religious-oriented state. I mean, you know, there are issues of kosher food and Shabbat and other issues, but you're correct. At the present moment, there is no orthodox man uh, among the Supreme Court justices. There was once a couple of years ago from Eliakim Rubinstein, his name was, but that just brings up the issues. And allow me to comment on on one of the things that everybody is very angry about here on, shall we say, the right side of the the political spectrum. Supreme Court justices review administrative procedures, and they use something called reasonableness. In other words, if it's reasonable, then you get away with it. If it's not reasonable, then we're not going to change anything. And let me give you an example. Women at the wall, should they be able to pray uh, in an egalitarian manner or not? Now, you can be for it or against it, but then I ask you, well, could Jews pray on the Temple Mount? It's basically really very parallel But on the one hand, the women get all the support from the Supreme Court from a liberal point of view, because I think it's reasonable that women should be able to have some time at the the Western Wall Plaza. Yet Jews cannot on a Temple Mount because it, it would make the Arabs angry. Yeah, but women at the Western Wall might make the Orthodox Jews angry. So you see where I'm going. In other words, if you don't have a proper representation of all opinions and viewpoints in the Israeli society, you're not going to get a good judgment. 
I still hope, and uh, I look at these things, and I still feel like maybe there's not just the time yet to make a deal, that the deal will be made, that both sides will figure out a way, compromise. Do you think that's going to happen? How do you see that coming together? Well, I, I do believe it's going to be a compromise, but I think that the problem is, and I think you alluded to it in one of my the first questions you directed at me, is this truly an argument over uh, reform, uh, whether it's needed, how much of it is needed, why is it needed, or the fact that, A, the left or left of center forces lost the last election and they don't know what to do, mm-hmm. or it's an issue on um, uh, social, cultural identity issues. Is Israel a democratic state with a Jewish character? Is it an, a Jewish democratic state? Is it a Jewish state with a, with a democratic character? And these, of course, cannot be easily solved because, uh, especially from what I see on the ground, and this is my opinion, most of these people are not arguing over judicial. They're arguing over whether how Israel reflects their own values and not the shared values of as many Israelis as possible. Until they accept this, there'll probably be no compromise on their point, and it'll take a little bit more time, whether it's weeks or uh, a little bit longer, but we'll see what happens. I agree with that take, and I think that's very interesting and something that is going on here in the States as well and seems to me more now more than ever all across the world. Well, final question as we look at uh, two areas that we are very concerned with, and I know you are as well, uh, the Temple Mount and the ability for the Jewish people to have a presence on the Temple Mount, not necessarily even a temple, although that is something that we have talked about before, but even just a presence on the Temple Mount, and then Jewish presence in the historical and biblical Judea and Samaria, which is what is called occupied territory, as these protests rage on and seems like it's violent upheaval and change going on potentially all over the place. Could you tell me, do you see any changes for the status of those two locations? Whether or not this government will apply sovereignty, and I think that's the issue in some form or another, I don't see it in the immediate future. From what I know of Mr. Netanyahu, and you can probably trust me in this, I do know him well, he does not go for immediate a radical change. He's very much an incremental type of a person, and therefore he would probably not apply sovereignty at this moment in time. Don't forget there's a lot of world opinion out there that he has to take into consideration. As for the Temple Mount, we're still sort of stuck with very small progress being done, but I think I have to look back at my activity on behalf of the Temple Mount over actually about a half a century now, and we've come a very long way. So I'm a little bit more optimistic than pessimistic, but I'm not looking at an immediate flip over in policy or orientation. Well, Wakey, thank you so much. As always, you provide valuable insight and you make things easy to understand, give us many things to think about. So stay safe. And until we talk again, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. And goodbye to you and our listeners. Well, Israel Madad is our go-to person in the land of Israel. Of course, it gives us really the understanding of what's happening in the area of Judea and Samaria. Uh, He's just 
knowledgeable. I experienced the day of resistance in the land, got stuck on the highway in Tel Aviv, and uh, I know exactly what he's talking about and what the country's going through right now. Basically split 50-50 right down the line between the left and the religious right. And it's interesting. I do think this is possibly setting up for that Ezekiel 37 prophecy of the two sticks. But we'll talk about that in the future. A new friend that uh, I want to introduce to our listeners today. If you listen in the past, you've heard my father interview Dr. Elwood McQuaid of Friends of Israel. You've heard us talk to Steve Herzig many times during the Jewish High Holy Days, the Holy Days, the Feast. We talked to Steve uh, even Paul Scharf we've talked to, but I've got to tell you one gentleman that I've wanted to get in touch with ever since I read his book, and when it came out, a new friend, Chris Katolka. Chris, welcome to the program. Jimmy, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm a little jealous you're in the land right now, and I'm back here in New Jersey. Uh, well, I understand you will be here next week, and we do that quite often together, don't we? Throughout the year, uh, we pass... In the land, we probably will see each other at a border someplace. That's exactly right. Yep, that's the beauty of it. When we get to bring believers over to the land of Israel, sometimes we pass, we cross paths, and uh, and I'm thankful that you're over there, and I'll be over there next week. Ah, that's true. Well, tell me, Chris, explain to us a little bit about your role at Friends of Israel. I, I love working with Friends of Israel, ministering with the organization. I've been with them since 2000. And four, I uh, started as an intern, uh, and today I uh, oversee um, all of the uh, outreach activities that we have in the Jewish community all around uh, the United States and Canada. I uh, assist our church ministries representatives who are investing in churches and sharing about Israel and the Jewish people biblically in the local church. And then I also get a chance to oversee all of the outreach efforts as our field workers are connecting with Jewish people in the Jewish communities in major cities all around the U.S. and Canada as well. And so it's a joy to be able to uh, share um, with, uh, with my colleagues the joys of doing ministry together. But then also uh, I, I host the Friends of Israel Today radio program for the, for the Friends of Israel, and that is an absolute joy as well, to be able to connect our, our radio audience with the truth of the gospel and the truth that God loves and supports Israel and the Jewish people. And for that reason, as Christians, we should also. Wow. Uh, you do a lot there. And uh, I like the fact that you have been involved in a ministry, one that we wholeheartedly support. Um, I encourage uh, folks, if you haven't heard uh, Friends of Israel today, the radio program, it's very solid. It's a great program. You get an Israeli flavor to it, and uh, I, I like that. And uh, you also have a podcast that you do with Steve Herzig. That's right. Steve Herzig, who I know has been on the program with you and then also uh, with your father in the past, uh, we do a podcast together called the Jew and Gentile Podcast, which uh, takes a look at what's going on in Israel in the news. It looks at the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. Um, and then it's also just a lot of fun as well, a lot of laughing um, and a lot of fellowship all on a podcast. It's called the Jew and Gentile Podcast. Wow. Well, the reason I wanted to have you on the program this week, Chris, is I uh, got your book when I got on the plane on the way over here to Israel. Um, I, I had every intention to read it, but when I got on the plane, I opened up, I read the first chapter, 
And I'm telling you, I was hooked. I dove right into the book. I had my pen out. I was underlining everything. Folks, his book that uh, came out, Israel Always, and uh, is a great book. What prompted you to write this book, Chris? You know, I'm thankful that Harvest House, the publisher, uh, they reached out because they really wanted a book that connected Christians with the Holy Land mm. and connected Christians with uh, Israel all throughout history. And so we were able to partner together. And my passion for writing this book is kind of, uh, it was kind of directed, Jimmy, to three different audiences. The first audience is for people who are going to take a pilgrimage to Israel. And I think you know this since you're over there leading a tour right now as we speak. You know, it's not just a trip to Israel. It's a pilgrimage. It's an opportunity mm. to, to deepen your faith with the Lord Jesus as you walk uh, his paths throughout the Holy Land. So the book preps people for what they're to expect or what they can expect when they get to, to Israel. Uh, the book is maybe even for the other audiences, people coming back from the Holy Land, and they go, that was a lot. That was more than I could ever imagine. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like my brain hurts, you mm -hmm. know, from all the history. So the book is designed to also maybe help re-engage people when they return from the Holy Land to kind of uh, get a feel for everything they saw. And then finally, maybe the person that's reading will never go to the Holy Land. Um, and that's okay. This book is designed to kind of take you over there and to show you one important thing that I believe biblically matters, and that's the faithfulness of God, that God has been faithful to Israel and the Jewish people since he called Abraham. And that's because of a promise that he made to Abraham that is absolutely eternal, unbroken. It cannot be broken. And for that reason, uh, God's faithfulness is seen even today and in the future for Israel. And he, if you can trust that God will be faithful to Israel, the Jewish people, you can count on the fact that he's going to be faithful to us as well. Amen. And he's got to keep that promise to he made to the Jews or else he could break the promise that he made with us, which is eternal life if we believe in his son dying on the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've got to add one more aspect to your uh, book uh, or reason for why you wrote it, Chris. I was sitting on the plane. I'm reading it. Go uh, ahead. I'm excited to hear. Yes. I So I sat the book down on the seat next to me. And a gentleman, a Jewish gentleman, looks at it and he goes, ah, Israel always. What's that about? And I'm like, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> it That's could, great. It could be used as a witnessing tool. Well, one of the things that uh, I was... Uh, uh, what prompted me, and I wanted to have you on after reading this book, we got a question last week for from a pastor. And, 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 you know, you look at the Jews from yesterday, past, present, and the future in this book, which I love. I mean, everything, I agree wholeheartedly with everything that you write. It's very well written. And, um, but we got, we had a pastor that asked a question, why do people hate the Jewish people? Through history, why do people hate the Jewish people? What would you say to a pastor that's asking that question? Yeah, you know, this is a question we get a lot here, too, at Friends of Israel, is, uh, you know, you would think after the Holocaust, the world would have learned its lesson, uh, you know, about the dangers of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is the hatred of Jewish people. Um, and so you'd think we would have learned our lesson, but we didn't. Uh, anti-Semitism the hatred of the Jewish people is on the rise. Even here in America, 60% of hate crimes that are committed are directed 
towards the Jewish people. Um, and so that's a that's a large number of hate crimes toward a very tiny minority of people uh, as U.S. citizens. And that is worse in other countries. Anti-Semitism is worse, worse in other countries as well. And the reason why is is because uh, it's a spiritual issue. Mm. It, it's, it's actually uh, it's it's a it's rooted all throughout the scriptures. We've seen it all throughout church history and history, and now we're even seeing it today. And, and the reason why is because we believe that Satan attacks what God values. Mm. Uh, and God values the Jewish people because he has a plan for the Jewish people. In fact, on the podcast the other day, Steve and I were looking at Revelation chapter 12 when the, when, when the dragon was standing there waiting for Jesus to be born because mm. he was waiting for that opportunity to snuff out the Messiah because the Jewish people and, uh, and Jesus is Jewish is a part of the plan of God and his redemption for all mankind. And so if Satan can get to the Jewish people, he can thwart the plan of God. And that's, of course, not going to happen. We know who wins the battle in the end from the book of Revelation. But, Jimmy, it's a spiritual issue. It's the events going on behind the scenes uh, in the in the spiritual realm that are manifesting itself in uh, in the hatred toward the Jewish people that we see even today. Wow, that great answer! In fact, that was the the very chapter that that pastor was teaching in church, and he didn't really understand it. And so, uh, that's a great answer, great thought process. Satan's plan is to defeat God, to defeat the angels, and to defeat man. And if he can defeat God by wiping out the Jewish people, which he has tried through history, he can defeat God. And of course, that's been his plan right from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Well, Chris, uh, I appreciate the book so much. Uh, you go into yesterday when you're talking about the history of the Jewish people. Very well thought out. Today, as you look at the land of the Jewish people, what do you say to people that would ask you, you know, should we be lifting the Jewish people up every single day? A hundred percent. We should be praying for the Jewish people. I believe that when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, mm. which is Psalm 122, verse six, we're asking for shalom, peace globally. I actually mentioned that in the book when I, I, I like to connect Psalm 122 with God's plan for prophetically for the future. And so when you're praying for the peace of Jerusalem, you're praying for the type of peace that Jesus wishes that he could have brought had they believed in him. Uh, you know, Jesus in the gospel says, oh, how, you know, how he wishes as he's weeping over Jerusalem, he, he wishes that they would have accepted him as the Messiah because then he could have brought the shalom, the peace that the prophets had promised, mm. um, but it wasn't meant to be for a reason. He was meant to go to the cross. It was his mission to go to the cross but and, and to bring ultimately peace and reconciliation to all mankind through his death, burial, and resurrection. But, you, you know, when we talk about the idea of lifting up and praying for the Jewish people, you know, that goes back to the heart that even Paul had. Uh, that you can see all throughout his writings, that he had a heart for his own people, and that he would even be willing to sacrifice his own salvation for his people's salvation. Um, and so praying for the peace of Jerusalem um, and, 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 and showing and sharing the love of, of the Messiah with our Jewish friends is one of the best ways through prayer, um, through acts of love and kindness, is the greatest way that you can show 
that you love and support them uh, on a constant basis. You, you know, I, Jimmy, I always say the Bible is a Jewish book, mm. and we are grafted into this amazing story of God's redemption. Um, and so, you, you know, when we think about the fact that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, the Bible is a Jewish book through and through, it should it should drive us to see and to pray for Israel and the Jewish people. Wow. The book is called Israel Always. Uh, it gives, uh, Chris gives the biblical story of the Jews, the promised land and the temple, the exile and the return between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those 400 silent years you talk about, that's great stuff. I love it inside Israel in the time of Jesus. That's yesterday. Part two of the book is today, the land and the people, the miracle of Israel, politics in Israel today. If that's something that always we try to focus on here on our program, Prophecy Today, to focus on the Jewish people. God still has a plan for the Jews and he's accomplishing it as we speak. He's moving those pieces around on the chessboard, as we like to say. Well, Chris, I want to ask you a favor. If you would stick around, we've got to take a break. And when we come back from the break, we're going to touch on the Legacy Series with my father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, as we always do. But I would love for you to hang around for our I Look at the Book section at the end of the program because I want to ask you two questions. Is peace possible in the Middle East and the place of Israel and Bible prophecy? So when we come back, after the Legacy Series with a look at the book. Chris, will you join with me? I'll be happy to. Thanks, Jimmy. Great. We'll take a break. We come back. It'll be the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. And then the a look at the book with Chris Katolka with Friends of Israel. Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. We'll have Chris Katolka come back with me at the uh, Look at the Book section, where we'll talk about Israel's place in Bible prophecy and will there be peace in the Middle East. You can find his book, Israel Always, at foi.org. This week on the Legacy Series, we're going to continue our study on the second coming of Jesus Christ back to the earth. We'll look at what takes place just after the Battle of Armageddon. But first, let us rehearse how the campaign of Armageddon unfolds. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 2, speaks of all the nations of the world that gather in Jerusalem with their armies. Jesus then comes out of heaven as revealed in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 14, and he comes with an army, and that army is the church who went to heaven at the rapture of the church. We come to the Mount of Olives with Jesus Christ, that's Zechariah 14, 4, and the armies of the world flee to the valley of the mountains, and that's the Jezreel Valley as described in Zechariah 14, 5. While these armies set up their strategy, Jesus Christ rebuilds the city of Jerusalem, makes the Temple Mount one mile square, and builds a temple in Jerusalem, as described in Ezekiel chapter 40 to 46. Then Jesus goes to the Jezreel Valley for the actual battle, where this massive army will be killed. Now we're set for the Lord Jesus Christ to go to Petra. Please take your Bible and go to Isaiah 63, 
where we will continue our study with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Go over to the book of Isaiah, chapter 63. Remember the principle I told you over there in first, uh, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. No prophecy of private interpretation, but we must coordinate all prophetic truth to see how things are going to unfold. Isaiah chapter 63. You do remember Isaiah 61, do you not? Isaiah 61 is the passage of scripture that Jesus read when he went into the synagogue there in Nazareth. And they asked him to read a portion of the text for that day. They're reading for that particular day. He was reading Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2. Just look at verse 2 for a moment. Here's where he finished and he did not finish the entire verse. Isaiah 61, 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and then he closed the scroll. But look what was left. And the day of vengeance of our God to confront all that mourn. And here he leaves this portion out talking about the day of the vengeance of the Lord. Now go over to Isaiah 63. In Isaiah 63, we're going to see in the first six verses, two rhetorical questions asked by Isaiah and responded to by Jesus Christ. Let's look at the first question. Isaiah 63, 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom with thy garments from Basra? This is that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Now, that's the rhetorical question that Isaiah asked. Notice what he starts with. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Basra is the entrance to Petra in Edom, which is the lower third of modern day Jordan. Petra is the location in the book of Revelation chapter 12 and verse 6 that the Lord has prepared to protect the Jewish people in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Now, the question asks, who is this that cometh from Petra, from Basra in Edom? Here's the answer, Jesus speaking. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And then a second question that is asked by Isaiah. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and the garments like him that treadeth in the wine vat? Sounds familiar to the book of Revelation, chapters 19 and 14. Who is it that looks like he's been treading in the wine vat? The grape vineyard's place of smashing down the grapes and braining out the juice. The answer comes in verse 3. I have trod in the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in my anger, and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garment, and I will stain all of my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And Jesus Christ said, I am the one who treadeth the wine vat with the fierceness of Almighty God. I'm the one that is bringing this judgment. I do it alone. And so he concludes that thought found in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 2. Have you ever thought of where Nazareth is? I mentioned it just a moment ago, the mountains of Nazareth, part of those Valley of the Mountains mountain ranges. 
If you were to stand in Nazareth, looking down to the south, you would see the Jezreel Valley laid out. I can almost imagine Jesus as a 10-year-old boy running through those mountainsides, looking over in the Jezreel Valley, thinking what his responsibility would be. As a teenager, early 20s, he didn't leave Nazareth until he was 30 years old, looking out, contemplating what would be happening down there. And now he's saying, I'm the one. I'm the one that treadeth the wine vat, the fierceness of Almighty God. I'm the one with the blood sprinkled upon my white garment. And he walks over to Petra. Blood flowing as high as a horse's bridle? Well, let's go with my, I think, conservative estimate. 100 million soldiers. 100 million. That's 600 million quarts of blood. 176 miles. You do the numbers, but I believe that's about 50 quarts of blood for every foot. About as high as the horse's bridle. And so I think that is literal. By the way, where does he walk? From the Jezreel Valley, where he's cast everybody dead. He walks 176 miles. Oh, yes, I forgot to tell you. It's exactly 176 miles from the Jezreel Valley to Petra on the dot. And he goes over, walking through the valley of blood. I'm the one that's brought the judgment. Go to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 43, verse 1. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh towards the east. That would be the eastern gate. Verse 2, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like the noise of many waters. That's Jesus Christ described in Revelation chapter 1. This is Jesus Christ coming. He's coming by way of the gate to the east. As you study this passage of scripture, you'll realize he's coming from Petra, which is to the east of Jerusalem. He comes across the Rift Valley, the Jordan Valley. He comes up the backside of the Mount of Olives, the mountain to the east. He crosses the Kidron Valley. He goes through the gate, the Eastern gate. By the way, there's a period of time between when Jesus Christ steps on the earth and when the battle of Armageddon takes place because he has to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, Zechariah chapter 14, make it 2,500 square miles, not the eight and a half square miles it is today. He has to lift up the Temple Mount. It's three football fields in size now. It will be one mile square according to the book of Ezekiel. And then he builds a 21 story temple on top of that. He builds the temple, Zechariah 6.12, where he will rule and reign, Zechariah 6.13. And so while these armies are moving to the Jezreel Valley, 97 miles from Jerusalem, he's doing all of this, reconstructing the city of Jerusalem, reconstructing the Temple Mount, building that temple that he will rule and reign from. He goes to the Jezreel Valley. All the activities takes place. He walks 176 miles over to Petra. He gathers in one third of the Jews that have been protected from harm's way they're going to all be saved. He gathers them up. He brings them by the Jordan Valley. He comes up to the back side of the Mount of Olives, crosses the Kidron Valley, comes up to the Eastern Gate. Now notice what it says in verse 5. So the Spirit took me up and he brought me into the 
the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Verse seven. And he said unto me, son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. And my holy name shall not be disgraced ever again. Jesus Christ brings these Jews, walks in. Oh, by the way, you know what day he walks into the temple? Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Yom Kippur, how do I know? Hebrews chapter 9. High priest in the past once a year went into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. But now once in the end of time, Jesus Christ walks into the Holy of Holies. And he there walks in to sit down on his throne to be king of kings and lord of lords forever on Yom Kippur. Oh, by the way, if you back that up 10 days, because there's 10 awesome days that precede Yom Kippur, that's when the Jews try to make sure they're included in the book of life. You go back over to that first of the three fall feasts, that's Rosh Hashanah, Feast of Trumpets. And Jesus Christ steps down on the earth on Feast of Trumpets. Oh, Brother Jimmy, Matthew 24 says, no man can say the day or the hour. Now, wait a minute. The word day has a different meaning than just 24 hours. The word day is, hey, we're living in the day of computers. We're living in the day of terrible economic crises. And so it can be used generally. You got to study the text because he fulfilled the first four feasts. He was crucified on Passover, buried on unleavened bread, resurrected on first fruits, and the Holy Spirit came on Feast of Pentecost, just like he said. In the proper day sequences, Jesus Christ fulfilled the first four feasts for the Jewish people, not for Christians, for the Jewish people. Thus he, to be consistent, must fulfill the last three feasts. He will come back to the earth. What did Matthew 24, 31 say? Take a trumpet, blow it. That's the blowing of the trumpets. That's the Feast of Trumpets. He rebuilds the temple. He reconstructs the city. He does all of those activities. And then he goes to the Jezreel Valley, goes over to Petra, comes back, and he gets there 10 days after the blowing of the trumpet on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. A couple of days later, what happens? Feast of Tabernacles. That's why old Peter in Matthew 17 said, let's put up three tabernacles. I see Jesus in his glory, in his kingdom. I see Moses. I see Elijah. Three tabernacles, a sukkah. That's what sukkot is. That feast called tabernacles in English. It's the remembering of how they wandered in the wilderness, living in a sukkah, a thatched hut. And that is representing in fulfilled prophecy. The kingdom period. As he fulfilled the first four, he will fulfill in the proper day sequence the last. These seven Jewish feast days have a historic, agricultural, and prophetic significance. Jesus fulfilled the four spring feasts. He died on Passover, was buried on unleavened bread, resurrected on first fruits, and the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost as Jesus had said he would. That then leaves the three fall feasts, and Jesus must fulfill each of them in the proper day sequences. Jesus Christ will come back to the earth on Feast of Trumpets. Now this is not the rapture, but the second coming. 
Jesus then will enter the temple on the Day of Atonement, and the 1,000-year kingdom will begin on the Feast of Tabernacles. As he fulfilled the four spring feasts, he will fulfill the last three fall feasts as well. Next week on the broadcast, we study God's Word to see how Babylon, modern-day Iraq, how Babylon plays into its scenario. This is a very important study. Please join us for that study. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Let me remind you that you can get all of these series that he does at our website, prophecytoday.com. There are books, there are CD audio series and DVDs, and we are going to make those at a special price offer just because we want you to enhance your study capability, not only yours, but your family and those people around you. Well, we're going to have to take a break, and when we come back, Chris Katolka joins me again to answer the questions, will there be peace in Israel, and what is Israel's role in Bible prophecy? Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. We recently talked about how an airstrike in Aleppo shut down a major airport and cut off a vast amount of earthquake aid to northern Syria. Horizons International is getting around the issue by driving aid in with Lebanese and Syrian church partners. Pierre Hosni with Horizons International says several warring factions are fighting for aid and blocking it from each other. However, the Syrian church is serving their neighbors in Jesus' name, regardless of ethnicity or religion. Pray for a spread of the gospel. And the newest member of our network battles addiction in the U.S., The Lighthouse, helps men who struggle with addiction and their families by providing resources and a gospel-centered program. Along with a 30-day residential program, The Lighthouse provides community and consultation services. God's using this ministry to break the chains of addiction nationwide. They're also beginning consultation work in South Africa and Nigeria. Meet The Lighthouse at missionnews.org. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This is the section of the program where we take a look at the book. And if you remember, in our last half hour, I asked our new friend, Chris Katolka, with Friends of Israel, with the Friends of Israel Today radio program, Bible teacher, uh, involved in the ministry as a director of ministries inside the United States and around the world. Probably, Chris, welcome back. 
Thank you, Jimmy. Thanks for having me back. Yes, and this is the portion of the program where we take a look at the book. We kind of wrap it all up. And I know as we examine current events, there are always two questions that come up. One, is peace possible in the Middle East? And you've written a new book entitled Israel Always. It's a great book. I encourage people to get it if they can. And you answer that question, is peace possible in the Middle East? Well, Chris, what what do you say? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, It was a great lead up for this question here. Uh, Is peace possible in the Middle East? And Jimmy, you know, something that's been um, present for the last few years has been the Abraham Accords. We Mm. are seeing peace happen right before our very eyes, something that I think most politicians never thought would happen is that Israel, all of a sudden, they already had some type of cold peace with Egypt and Jordan. Um, uh, And now all of a sudden, out of the blue, um, through the working of the Trump administration, they were able to broker a deal with Israel and several other Arab nations, Gulf nations, like the UAE. In fact, I have friends in Israel right now who are going through a tour, and right after they're done their tour, they're going to jump on a plane and, and go to Qatar. Mm. which has never been done from Tel Aviv, which is just absolutely amazing. Why? Why? Because of the Abraham Accord. So there is peace that's happening, and it's an amazing thing to see. But the reality is, is that there is still a lot of anti-Semitism, and there's still a lot of anti-Zionism, which is that anti-Semitism is the hatred of Jewish people. Anti-Zionism is the hatred of the state of Israel. Mm. There's still a lot of that in the countries that have made peace with Israel. You know, uh, even though the politicians shake hands, Jimmy, and they make a peace deal, that doesn't mean Main Street thinks the same way as their leaders. Um, and so there's still, in a, you know, a poll was done in, in uh, after the Abraham Accords, and many of these Arab countries are still weary. The poll was done among, among the civilians, and many of them are weary of the deal, the Abraham, Abraham Accords that was made with Israel. So there's still anti-Semitism and there's still anti-Zionism. So, yes, there is peace going on, but it's still kind of an awkward peace there because there's still this embedded uh, kind of hatred toward Israel and the Jewish people uh, in the Middle East. And so the reality is, is that there will be peace one day in the Middle East, but it won't come because of what a politician does. It won't come because of uh, uh, of, uh, of a broker deal between countries. In fact, we just I just was reading today that China brokered a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia, mm. uh, two countries that were at odds with one another, and China was the one who who brokered a deal. Th- these kind of deals don't they don't last long. They're temporary, just like much of human history. But there will be a day that comes when peace will arrive when there will be shalom and that can only come when the prince of peace arrives and his name is jesus and when his feet touch down on the mount of olives uh, and he takes his rightful seat on the throne in jerusalem that's when peace will be spread that's when there will not only will be peace in the middle east i know that we're concerned about the middle east but there will be peace globally as as nations uh stream it says in micah chapter four uh the the nations the peoples will stream to jerusalem to receive the torah it says and we could understand that as almost divine instruction to hear from the king himself king jesus who is the king of kings and so that is when global peace will come that's when peace in the middle east will become a reality right now it's all on paper Right now, the politicians make peace, 
But the reality is, is just as uh, we were mentioning earlier, there is still a hatred toward Israel and the Jewish people that some of us just can't understand why it's that way. It's that way because Satan is still at work, and it will be that way until Jesus takes his rightful seat on his throne right here on earth in Jerusalem. What is the role of Israel in Bible prophecy? What place does Israel play in Bible prophecy? Israel was designed uh, and called by God for a purpose. You know, when God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he made a promise to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you land, descendants, and a blessing, that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he made a covenant in Genesis chapter 15, an eternal covenant with Abraham. And ultimately, by the time you get to the book of Exodus, uh, there is a covenant that God makes with, with the nation of Israel, that they would be a kingdom of priests that they would be a, a, a treasured possession to God if they obeyed his commandments. And so God had called Israel biblically uh, in history in order to be the conduit of his blessings to the world, that through Abraham and his family line, through biblical history, we see that God was constantly working even with a disobedient people, Jimmy, even with a disobedient people, God was still working to bring the message of salvation and deliverance to the world. And that's what God's plan was, to use Israel as a kingdom of priests so that the world might know once again who the one true creator God is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it would be through Jesus's obedience to the Father, uh, as we see in Philippians chapter 2. It would be through his obedience to even death on a cross, that God would, he would humble himself, that through his humility, God would resurrect him and exalt him, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess, so that ultimately that promise will find its reality today and in the future as well when Jesus returns. But biblical Israel in the past plays a major role in how God wanted to bring his message of salvation to all the nations. Excellent answer, Chris. And what a great interview from Jimmy and Chris Katolka from Friends of Israel Ministry. You know, as we listen to this program today, we talk with Dave Dolan, we talk with Ken Timmerman, and we see events that are taking place, political events taking place across the spectrum in Saudi Arabia. We look at the things taking place in Israel right now, major upheaval, and we see that these events are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And then as Chris reminded us, God has a plan, a plan that began in Genesis, is going to be finished in Revelation. We are in the midst of God's plan right now. Israel has a role to play. We, the church, have a role to play. You, the believer, have a role to play. As we look at all these events and as we look at everything that's taking place right now, really there's nothing left for me to say except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.